Our reading from the New Testament letters comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 and 9. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, we're grateful for all we've been able to experience and celebrate already this morning. And we know that you give your word to us, ultimately so that we can become more fully alive, sons and daughters of God, so that we can grow into the kinds of people that Seamus can learn from 
and grow with. Come, Holy Spirit, and anoint this part of this worship. Amen. God is love. Like I said earlier, we can bank on that now. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, came, and in the way that he came, emptying himself, making himself virtually nothing, becoming completely human. And then there were those years in which he revealed God's love for us. He didn't just talk about that love. He revealed it. He healed people. Sometimes he healed people by touching them, and sometimes he healed people by teaching them. Of course, a good physician is someone who's willing to tell the patient what's true. And so Jesus ends up being that kind of physician in our reading for today, and it's a hard, it's a hard message for the people to hear. But its purpose is to set them free and to heal them. Of course, then there's Jesus' death. As Paul says, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, and because we were sinners, Christ died for us. Such love. Such love. Then he rose from the dead. And instead of saying, how could you? How dare you? He said, follow me into life. Into life eternal. Yes, God is love. And he not only made us, he means to mend us. The story of the Bible begins with God making the heavens and the earth, the first expression of his love for us. That's what we talked about last week. But very soon into that story and into our story, there's a rupture within God's world and creation and a rupture in in God's relationship with human beings. And basically the rest of the story of the Bible and the rest of our story is God not just attempting, but absolutely committed to mending that rupture and its effects. Not just its effects on our souls, but on our bodies, our relationships, and all of creation. And the word for this, the biblical word for this is salvation. Um, And sometimes we've kind of narrowly understood salvation as God saving our souls so we can go to heaven someday. But as Jesus points out in our reading for today, and he's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah, this salvation includes everything. And so it includes the poor, those who are in prison, those who are blind and oppressed. And this is just a sampler. It's not just the blind, obviously. He healed the blind, the lame, the leper, the deaf. He even raised the dead during his ministry. And this is just a sampling of a larger sampling that's found in Isaiah 61. And again, that's just a sampling of, of this salvation. And and it's for our physical being, it's for our spiritual being, it's for our emotional and mental being, it's for our relationships, it's for the entire cosmos. That's how comprehensive this salvation is. That's the degree to which God intends on mending and healing and saving and restoring this world. I've often mentioned that the word salvation is kind of a luggage word. Into that piece of luggage are all these different but related ideas like deliverance and rescue, like healing and reconciliation and renewal and uh, restoration. uh, this, This is God's 
massive restoration project, and he calls it the kingdom of God. So that's what God intends to do. He's committed to doing it. He's invested a whole lot to already, already in, in trying to bring that about. And the fact that after his resurrection and our doing what we did to him, and we all did, Jew, Gentile, everyone, he says, I still want you. I'm still committed to this. In fact, he is so committed to this that in Jesus' being, he still is human. With that physical body, he is now at the right hand of the Father. God is completely invested by incorporating our physical being, our own earthiness into his own being. I can't imagine that kind of love. I can't imagine that kind of commitment. I can't imagine it because I, I can't understand why, knowing myself, why he would be that committed to me. Brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation. But a number of questions swirl around what Jesus is saying here. Like, how? How is this supposed to happen? When is it supposed to happen? And for whom is it supposed to happen? Jesus begins with that last question. The people in his hometown assume that it's a salvation that's for Jewish people. And it's interesting that Jesus or Luke or both leave out a line from that Isaiah 61 passage. Because it doesn't end simply with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But it goes on to say, and the day of the vengeance of our God. And so, you know, that's, that's what the people in Nazareth are, are thinking. And you, you have to realize that there are some open wounds here. Around the time of Jesus' birth, about five miles away, near the city of Sepphoris, which functioned as sort of the capital of Galilee, there was an insurrection against Rome. And 2,000 Jews were crucified. I'm guessing that some of those people were relatives, friends. And so Jesus says, um, actually quotes a proverb, which he imagines some of them are thinking, well, physician, heal yourself. We've heard what you've done in other places, heal yourself. And so, yeah, Jesus decides, okay, I'm the physician here. I'm going to do some soul surgery. And he says, you know, remember when there was a famine in the land in the, in the time of Elijah? It wasn't a widow in Israel that Elijah went to, but a widow in Zarephath and Sidon, enemy territory. It was that poor woman that Elijah ministered to. She had a jar of oil that never went dry, a container of flour that never went empty. And Jesus says, you remember Naaman, the Syrian? Syria also being enemy territory. And of course, they would have known, <laughs> they probably wanted to forget it, but they, they would have known the scriptures enough to know and remember Naaman. He wasn't just in, from enemy territory. He was actually the lead commander of the Syrian army. Remember, it wasn't a leper in Israel that Elisha healed. It was... It was Naaman, the Syrian. Boy, did that touch a nerve. And they were so angry that they became this mob that took 
someone from their own, their own town and, and, and led him, dragged him to the brow of a hill, and we're not sure what happened. If Jesus just sort of became the invisible man and, and walked through them, or if they at that moment came to their senses and thought, what are we doing? So yeah, I think uh, Beth nailed it. They thought they were the chosen ones. And they were. But they had forgotten what God had said to their ancestor Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. They forgot the other part of it. And Jesus is reminding them. But we can understand. We can understand why that would be really difficult to stomach the idea that, that those who had executed, crucified their loved ones and friends, people they knew, would also be the recipients of this good news. So yeah, that's something about the scope. Now, um, there's the how. And of course, so much could be said here. In fact, I'm, it's kind of interesting for me that another line that, that's left out of, of this passage uh, that's actually in um, Isaiah 61 is that he comes to heal the brokenhearted. And, and of course, that's also a part of all of this. And, and what we realize is that the mending of this world involves so much. You know, there's, many of us here have experienced trauma in our lives. Some of it recent. And, and, and deep wounds from our past. We were just talking with someone this week who, you know, going way back to her childhood. And yes, the gospel of Jesus is, and the, the healing of Jesus and the salvation is meant to attend to all those wounds as well. So this, this whole business of God's mending is a vast subject, but I wanted to focus on one thing this morning, one thing that's a part of this healing for all of us. And that's those who are poor as well as those who are rich, those who are in prison as well as those who've never been in prison. I remember I used to drive bus uh, for uh, some kids who were at the local detention home, and one of them asked me one day, I picked them up at 6 o'clock in the morning, so, so uh, do you have any relatives that haven't been in prison? I said, actually, I don't think I have any relatives that have been in prison. Really? He couldn't believe it. So I'm off scot-free, scot right? I, I don't have to worry about this thing that I'm about to say. What I'm about to say, what I'm about to talk about is, is a word that's often accompanied with the word salvation in the Bible, and it's the word metanoia. That's the Greek way of saying it. It's repentance. And so when Jesus first announced the good news of the kingdom of God, he said, I've got great news for you. The kingdom of God is upon you. Repent and believe this good news. And you see, the people of Jesus' hometown didn't think they had to repent. The Romans had. In fact, they, were, you know, they begrudged the fact that the Romans even had the opportunity to repent. But certainly, they would have to repent. We don't have to repent. John came you know, preaching a, a, a baptism for the forgiveness of, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so it wasn't like, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, people came up to Jesus and Jesus said to, to one person, you know, you're good to go. Next, you, you're going to have to be my disciple for a while. You, you're good to go too. You, you're going to have to be my disciple for a very long time. 
Now, all of us are called to be his disciples. All of us. The only way this is going to work is if all of us look at ourselves. And rather than pointing the finger into, and having this sort of binary, you know, those are the good people and those are the bad people. It's only as we all change that this restoration project can be successful. And there are three aspects to, to this uh, restoration project. Um, there's um, how we view our circumstances. Um, there's how we relate to our, our assumptions. And finally, there's uh, whether or not we're willing to name our gods. So our circumstances. I mean, clearly Jesus is talking about freedom. He's talking about the poor. He's talking about prisoners. He's talking about the oppressed. He's talking about freedom. But it's not just outer freedom. There's inner freedom as well. And as that is worth suggesting this morning by talking about repentance um, for everyone, we're talking about um, inner freedom as well as outer freedom. Now, I should also say here, you know, describe what repentance is. And just as we can have a narrow understanding of salvation, we can also have too narrow an understanding of repentance as, well, it's, it's admitting I'm a sinner, confessing my sins, and being forgiven. And certainly that's a part of it. But that's not its basic meaning. Um, the basic meaning of metanoia, and I'm probably going to use that word more than repentance this morning because I, I want to make sure we have a broad understanding of what we're talking about. Metanoia means to change one's thinking and to change one's life. It means to turn around, to go in a different direction. As one person put it, it's a decision of the whole person to turn around. It's a new start. It's a new beginning. And, and Seamus' baptism this morning is a sign of that. It's a sign that you know, when a, when a baby is born, it's such a fresh and exciting reality. And it's, it's, it's a kind of excitement and adventure that, that God wants us to experience not just once and not just twice, but throughout our lives. That each day have this freshness, this newness about it. A new beginning, a new start. Yes, Jesus wanted a new start for the poor, for the prisoner, for the oppressed, but for all of us. And so, yeah, there's an inner freedom, there's an outer freedom. As Paul says, even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. In fact, I was just talking with James this morning. Um, he kind of scared me. I, I came at 3.30 and all of a sudden he said, hi. <laughs> he was out in the corner. Um, but James loves God. Uh, he struggles with some things in his life. And, but he loves God and he's always reading the Bible and he, and when I came out of church later, um, uh, I always grab a quick piece of toast before I begin worship. He, he always has some biblical question to ask me, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the fact that a lot of this is symbolic, and it's symbolic because it has an outer application and it has an inner application. And I said, you just stole my sermon for today. That's right. He says, I, I'm still trying to get this symbolic thing going, but yeah, I just, there's an inner and an outer. And this freedom is inner and outer. and needs to be. Um, now Jesus does say, in the hearing of this word, 
it's being fulfilled today. Yeah, but John the Baptist is still in prison. He was the forerunner of Jesus. In fact, he would stay in prison till the end of his life on earth. And so that gets into the question of, of when. When is this supposed to take place? And, you know, Jesus often used the talking about metaphors, the metaphor of a seed. He continually suggested that rather than there being one dramatic divine gesture, that this would unfold gradually with our cooperation. And repentance is a part of our cooperation. But repentance is a part of our role. Now, sometimes that change happens outwardly. We have a person in our own church who came up for prayer not too long ago. And he came for his eyes. And when he went home, he realized he could see better. And that's continued to today. And then I also think of someone like Ken Miedema, who was born blind and is still blind at the age of 77. Um, he's a pretty remarkable guy. He's learned to accept and take up his outer circumstances. And so I remember seeing a, a, a movie one time of, of Ken Miedema. And uh, there he was riding his bicycle next to his wife on a city street. Yikes. And then there he was water skiing. I've been with him when he's written songs on the spot. Uh, at a convention coming up after the speaker, taking what he has just heard, obviously remembering a whole lot more than I remembered from that talk, and on the spot weaving it into a song. I'm not talking about a 15 or 20 second, you know, little ditty. I'm talking about five, six, seven minutes on the spot. Here's a guy who's free. He's blind, but he can see. In fact, yeah, I, I, yesterday I was thinking, I wonder if he's written anything lately. And I, I looked up Spotify, and this was one song that looked interesting, Kingdom, Kingdom in the Streets. And I started listening to that. It's eight minutes long. And I thought, this is amazing. This is such amazing poetry. So much theology here and so much interest. And, and I thought, boy, this definitely describes our, our world today. And then I, I looked, up, looked it up, and it's 40 years old. He wrote this 40 years ago. How many of us write songs that have that sort of enduring significance and meaning and application? And I'm even guessing that it's because he's blind that he can see things that some of us can't see. When you're blind, you don't have to worry quite so much about conforming to everyone around us. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty hard when you can see people not to try to fit in, right? Well, he can't. And so he's a, he's a songwriter, he, he's a prophet, because he can see often what I can't see. So there's that inner freedom, that inner liberation, that outer liberation, and, and we often don't know how things are going to play out in our lives. That's why a part of our metanoia, a part of our repentance and conversion, is how we learn to come to our circumstances. And there's so much in the New Testament about 
about taking up our circumstances and allowing them to be the sort of canvas in which we paint a new self with God. So the Apostle Paul, who was in prison, I mean, he was set free from prison on at least one occasion, miraculously. Also spent years in prison and allowed that experience to transform him. Became the person that he became. Uh, who, who talked about joy as much as any other biblical writer. And so, a part of our journey, a part of our metanoia, ongoing metanoia and repentance is learning how to respond and relate to our circumstances. doesn't mean we don't feel pain and grief and sadness and even anger. Jesus did. But learning that sometimes God will change our outer circumstances and sometimes God will use our outer circumstances to change us. And I truly believe that when we are consciously abiding in Christ, which is what he invites us to do, we will see changes in our outer world in our circumstances. It won't always be dramatic, but there'll be many moments, many times, even every day when we'll think, hmm, I think that was God. Gratitude helps a lot, by the way. Being grateful for what you already have will open your eyes up to the ways in which he is working that are a little more hidden. So anyway, I'm going to ask, have us all ask ourselves this morning, because this is a pretty big part of metanoia, is, is there a circumstance in my life right now where God is invite, inviting me to look at it in a different way? And please know if you're in a situation that is abusive, for example, certainly not suggesting that you think, okay, this is great. Although God may want to lead you and to guide you to uh, take some risks in your life, to have some courage that you haven't had to this point so that there can be change. The point is, is, am I willing to open myself up to God to courageously hear his will and do his will and at the same time allow him to do his important work in my life? That's a part of the healing, the mending that he brings. And then there's how we... How we relate to our assumptions, we all have them. I know I have them. And it's, you know, it's because we have assumptions that we can, we don't have to think through everything every time we make a decision or, or, or engage in some kind of action. We, we need to have assumptions. But it's really easy to cling to our assumptions. And so a lot of people had a lot of assumptions in Jesus' day about the Messiah, the promised Savior King of Israel and what would happen when he came. And because some of their assumptions didn't line up with Jesus, they killed him. The assumptions can be dangerous. They can be dangerous for our own health and for the health of other people. Last week we talked about some of the stories we may tell ourselves. Like, if I make a mistake, I'm a failure. I'm a screw-up. If I do something well, I'm amazing. I'm so much better than other people. Or I pray. I pray for circumstances to change and I think, oh, okay, there's something wrong with my faith. There must be something wrong with me. My prayers didn't get answered. Assumptions. We all have them. They all immediately tend to surface when we're trying to make sense of our lives. 
end of the world. And we have to hold them very lightly. We, part of our, in fact, you know, the basic meaning of metanoia is to change our thinking. And it's a part of how we get set free. Like our thinking about God. God is love. It's not that he loves some of the time. It's one of his qualities, you know. Sometimes you'll see him, no, God is love. That's a fundamental truth. That's an assumption on which you can base your life. And so, yeah, we have assumptions. Jesus, um, Jesus uh, the people in his hometown had assumptions. Assumptions about what should happen to enemies. And, you know, I'm going through my books right now. I don't plan on moving all my books to Michigan. If you've been in my office, that's a lot of books. I'd have to get a second truck. And so I'm sorting through my books right now, and there are some books that I realize, you know, that's, that was for a particular time and moment in my life and ministry. And I'm not even going to leave that one for the next pastor. He doesn't need that. And there are some books that, frankly, I don't even agree with anymore. My thinking has changed about that. And so rather than bring it to the church library where you would read something I don't want you to read, I'm throwing it into the trash can, into the dumpster. A lot of room in the dumpster now. The head start is over. So, you know, my thinking has changed over the last 19 years. And if I've done my job, your thinking has changed too. We're disciples. We never graduate. And one of the assumptions of being a disciple is that we're always learning. Our thinking is always evolving and changing. And it's, again, because people weren't open to their assumptions being questioned even, that they killed their own Messiah. It's really dangerous to assume that it's safe to hold on to what you've already believed. In fact, it's dangerous. And so, yeah, it's in Isaiah that it says that there's going to be revenge. There's going to, you know, that God is going to, bring about a vengeful response to Israel's enemies. It's in the Bible. But then Jesus talks about that widow and that leper. That's in the Bible too, by the way. He didn't pull those out of a hat. He didn't say, oh, there's something about Israel's past that you don't know about. <laughs> no, he says, you know about this. See, it's not enough to say, well, it's in the Bible. A lot of stuff in the Bible. And as we deal with hot-button issues that can divide God's people, I've shared a couple of principles that are based upon the Bible itself. This is what we know from the Bible. First of all, rules are at the service of the story. The story is not at the service of the rules. This story, now this book isn't a rule book. There's rules here, but that's not its main purpose. And the rules change along the way. I don't eat the way Jews ate in the Old Testament and many Jews still eat today. Those rules changed. Rules are at the service of the story and sometimes just a certain part of the story. The story isn't at the service of the rules. And so, yeah, there were some people in Jesus' day who believed that when the Messiah came, he would force the entire world to obey the entire Jewish law. They believed that the story was at the service of the rules. That was the purpose of the story. And Jesus says, you know, 
The Sabbath was made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. And even in the New Testament, you know, when, when, you know, well, I guess another principle here is that an inspired word is not necessarily the last word on a subject. And so when the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, you know, slaves obey your masters, that's a particular word for a particular moment in time. It's not for this moment in time. An inspired word is not the last word on a subject. This is a living, breathing book, and God can use it however he wants. And so, yes, he can say in the Old Testament, I'm going to bring vengeance against my enemies, and he can choose to say, and I'm bringing that vengeance on myself. I'm going to die. I can do that. I can do that with my word. It's my word. It belongs to me. I can do with it whatever I want. He's God. So yeah, holding our assumptions lightly. Having them. You know, we have a, a core value here. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And the danger of God's people is that so often we have taken things that are non-essential and put them in the essential pot. And when they're in the essential pot, guess what? If you disagree with me, then you're out of my life. Or I leave, I leave your church. Or I excommunicate you. And, and I'm reading a book on church history right now. It's called Dominion. And it's, it's a beautiful story. And sometimes it's a hard story to read because we've taken non-essentials at times and made them essential. It's okay to have these as working assumptions, things that we disagree about. But when we make them essential then we've given them a place that often hurts the wor- the, the, what God is doing in the world. We're actually in the way of what God is trying to do. And so, yeah, you know, the, Apostle, the Apostle Paul, of all people, said, if anyone claims to know something, he does not yet have the necessary knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1.8, or 8.1. I'm a little dyslexic. So, yeah, let's be careful. Holding on to assumptions that seem biblically based got Jesus killed. And as we walk with each other, as we, as we go engage in that ongoing process of metanoia, of repentance, there is that change in our thinking that we can and should expect and engage in along the way as disciples of Jesus. And then there's our gods. And you say, well, I I only have one God. I only worship one God. I hope that's true. I'm not sure it's true of me. Um, No, there's only one God that I want to worship. There's only one God that I claim is the God. It's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for example, it's clear that one of the things that had become God in the lives of the people that were in Jesus' hometown was, was a, sort of a Jewish nationalism. And even the, the, the disciples of Jesus, after he had risen from the dead, was about to ascend, they said, Are you, said at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and so we can turn certain ideas into things that we 
we, they become rivals of Jesus, basically. And, and there's any number of things that, that, can become, that can be really good things that we turn into gods. And metanoia almost always involves naming and letting go of a god. Almost always. If there's, if there's a need for growth and change in our lives, there's almost always a God going on. It's almost always something that we have turned into God. And so, yeah, it can be our country. It can be the Bible. It's called bibliolatry. We can turn the Bible into a God. And so let's say, well, this is what the Bible says. And here's Jesus you know, speaking in the flesh. It can be church. Church can become our God. If we think and talk about church, then we talk about Jesus, more than we talk about Jesus. Got a rival going on there. Got a God going on there. It's so easy to do because we can see church. Can't see God. And don't get me wrong, I love the Bible. I love church. And there's a lot that I don't know about the future. But I know I'm not going to spend less time in the Bible. I love the Bible. <laughs> and, and there are things I want to explore. There are things I want to think about more deeply. And because that's, that's where the wisdom is, and that's where I can meet God more than any place else. And I love church. It's not like, okay, I'm retiring from church. We don't have to go to church anymore. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to be paid to be a Christian anymore after I retire, right? Um, I want to do more thinking about the church. I want to reflect upon my experience here. I want to engage with other pastors and other churches, maybe do some writing, because I believe in church. This is the body of Christ. Anything that's called the body of Christ, it's important. But we can make church God. We can make the Bible God. Anything that's a rival, what did Jesus say about the Bible? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Even the Bible can become a rival to Jesus, to Jesus himself. And there's any other number of other, you know, prospects and, and, and possibilities when it comes to God's money. Luke talks about money a lot. He talks about it more than any other subject other than love and yes it can be family family can become our God there are people who in this building will sometimes say family is everything and I always cringe a little bit just, just, I think I, I know family is important but it's not everything not even close not even a close second to God um, and so family can become a God and I know that even as I say that, something may rise in you that gets kind of angry, like those people in Jesus' hometown who are about ready to get rid of him, and you may be even thinking, I'm glad you're leaving. I don't want to hear that. And maybe you do need to hear that. It's family. Jesus' main arrival, main rival in your life. What baptism is about is that Seamus belongs to Jesus Christ. And now we together with his parents and family seek to raise him in the Lord and for the Lord. 
That's what it's about. And so, yeah, it can be anything. And the thing is, so many of these things, especially family, is an incredible gift. I know we're really looking forward to being near our family again after 19 years. We're just really looking forward to it. And they will not be the center of our lives. Jesus will be. We know very little about what's going to happen on, you know, after August 1st. But both of us have talked about, you know, on August 2nd, we will have this new adventure of following Jesus. That's all we know for sure. And that's scary. I'm going to be a retired pastor. That's different than being an active pastor. I'm going to be a nobody in southwest Michigan. But I do know that we're going to follow Jesus together. And we're just sort of interested and intrigued and excited about what that will look like, where he's going to lead, and we believe he will lead us. And so, yeah, we have part of repentance and metanoia is almost always naming our gods, being honest about something that's become a rival to Jesus Christ. And so, going forward, so much, I think, revolves around the question, who is Jesus to me? And hopefully our understanding of Jesus will grow over time. Certainly did for Jesus' disciples in the first century. And hopefully our understanding of what it means to follow him as well as where he's leading us will grow over time. But that's really the question. That's what it means to be a Christian, a Christian, what it means to be the body of Christ. And so I I invite us today to enter into metanoia, Maybe to ask ourselves, okay, is there a circumstance in my life that I sense Jesus is inviting me to view differently and to come to differently in a way that would glorify him as well as participate in my ongoing transformation? And are there assumptions that I need to hold more lightly? You may not need to let them go completely, but you realize this isn't a deal breaker. I need to be careful here. And finally, are there gods that the Holy Spirit is naming in my life? And maybe really good things, gifts from God himself that I have turned into a rival to Jesus. Will you pray with me? light of the world. Would you shine your light on our lives and our hearts this morning? Would you grant us the gift of metanoia? Heal us. Change us. Forgive us and lead us. And don't stop. May you attend to those who mourn this morning. May you grant them your comfort you lead them into the future. We pray specifically for Pam and Patty and their families. We pray for Dana's friends and Val's family and friends as well. We pray for help for those whose circumstances feel intolerable and untenable. And we don't want to minimize those challenges this morning. 
Grant us that inner freedom that enables us to hear your voice and follow you. We pray for our country. We pray for our families. We pray for those who are struggling financially. We pray for those who are sick in their bodies, are brokenhearted, are mentally challenged. We thank you that Bear's friends have found a place that will meet their needs. I thank you for James, and I pray your help for him as he seeks to stay true and to follow you in the midst of so much that he struggles with. Lord, I pray for blessing and for guidance for our consistory, for our Vice President, Pat Obrecht, for Reverend Bill Faulkner, who will be BRC's interim pastor, and all the steps that will lead to BRC's finding their next full-time pastor. May this not only be a time of waiting, and yes, of praying, but of metanoia. And thank you, Jesus, for giving us that prayer that reminds us of what's ultimately important and what's ultimately happening. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.